This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast is brought to you by Renthal Street Hard Anodized Sprockets, up to 66% lighter than steel sprockets. Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast brought to you by Renthal Street. Check out renthal.com for all the components for your motorcycle. On today's podcast, myself, Steve English and Gordon Ritchie are going to be discussing the Catalan round of World SBK and Gordo. There's quite a lot to get through on this one, and uh, it was an action-packed weekend. It's always one of my favourite rounds on the track on the calendar. On Wednesday, I got to go into Barcelona. I got to meet up with Neil and his mom and have a nice day, just relaxed around the city. And then you go to one of the best tracks on our calendars. Yeah, we go to Catalonia, which is something I never thought I would hear myself saying. It is the epicenter of world MotoGP. In so many ways, Catalonia is the centre of it. And I just never thought we'd ever get World Superbike there because it was such a Grand Prix place. Um, obviously, that's one of the very, very, very few things that actually came out of COVID that we went there and, and we're still going there. And it's a great track. It's it's old enough to be a classic. It's modern enough to be uh, a, a modern layout. Um, some great corners, a lot of safety, which they improved again this year. It's a great place to go racing. Fantastic. I never had any spare time, but I did get to see Neil and a few other people from the... GP Paddock that, that came along and saw a few more of them on telly. Um, and we got to see a, a special press conference that turned out to be maybe not that special on Thursday. Yeah, let's jump straight into it, Gordo, because as I said, there's a lot for us to get through on today's show. Let's talk about the extraordinary press conference that Ducati called for Alvaro Bautista. And just to put it all into perspective, in the lead up to the Catalan round, I tried to get an interview with Bautista for the podcast. Hopefully that's going to come in one of the next couple of rounds. But I was told, no, no, we've got an extraordinary press conference for Alvaro. There'll be no additional media requests that will be held during the course of the weekend. So you'll have to come to the press conference. And all of us journalists got an an email or a text from Ducati saying, will you be in attendance at the extraordinary press conference? And the last time we've had these, it's been Chaz Davis announcing his retirement. It's been that kind of a level. And all the way through the last couple of months, all that I've heard is a one-year extension for Alvaro and then probably retire at the end of 2024. So whenever you've got all media engagements cancelled, an extraordinary press conference, you had Alvaro talking after Assen about spending time with his family, really assessing whether or not he was going to come back for World Superbikes next year. When this press conference gets called and all the other factors are going, there's 99% of your brain saying, come on, he's got another chance to win a world championship next year. He's coming back. But there's that 1% that's thinking, what if, what if, what if? And then we arrive into Ducati Hospitality the place is packed out with all of his crew. You've got all the, the Ducati staff there. Iker Lekawona turned up. Toprak Razgadioglu turned up. Camier's there. Chaz Davis is there. There's a few other riders. And you just think, what if? Maybe maybe Alvaro is going to walk away. And then it, it turns out that uh, the press conference was a bit of a, a bit of a dud, Gordo. Yeah, I mean, well, as soon as we got to Catalonia and actually started talking to people face-to-face, it seemed fairly obvious it wasn't going to be as momentous as we imagined. Um, but I was still having clients who obviously aren't there and aren't as inside, um, which is why they hire somebody like me to do stuff for them. Uh, oh, still going, so what's going to happen today? You know, and you know, half an hour before it, I was getting an email for somebody saying, should we prep for him retiring and all that? And, you know, the feeling then was that, 
Probably not, but as you say, maybe it's going to be. Maybe it's all, you know, they're, they're doing a, an inverted, you know, playing it down so it's a bigger impact. And then we find out that Alvaro's going to race next year with Aruba Ducati, uh, and maybe even a year after that. So I would even have seen the point of holding something that extraordinary if it was like, okay, I'm going to finish this year, a one deal, one year deal next year, and then I'm gone. Well, it isn't even that. Um, so yeah, well, I think we were all, I mean, Disappointed that it's not. It's not that Alvaro um, can do what he wants. Ducati can do what he wants. He's a great rider. He's a great champion. So they can do what they want. But I can't. I can't really work out now why there was such a, you know, important thing. Um, he did touch on the retirement thing, as you say in Assen, but nobody. Nobody's thinking. Well, he's he's four rounds in, three rounds in at Assen. You know, well, that's going to happen yet. Then when they call this press conference, that's what got everybody going. Truly going because up to at that point it was like oh he started talking about retirement already, um so yeah a bit of a damp squib, I mean it was strange it was good and it got you a chance to go in the tent and talk to some other people, which I found a lot more useful all off the record unfortunately but you, all information is good information, um and I had long chats with a couple of people involved, um in that world and that was great but the press conference itself. Yeah, it was good media attention for them. Maybe that's all it was. We just, let's get the cameras in our place. Let's get the focus on us before we start. In, in that case, it was a great success for them. I have to say, fair play to Federico Capelli, their press officer, because he did generate that interest. But it just happens that the next time there's an extraordinary press conference, people might be a little bit reticent to actually commit to it. I thought that one of the things for it as well, Gordy, you mentioned there that maybe they wanted to have the cameras in there. They wanted to get the, the bit of exposure the main reason for that was we knew that out on track, Alvaro was going to be away and gone, so we weren't going to see much of him this weekend. So the most that we saw from him really was that press conference on Thursday. Yeah, and the winner's press conferences and on telly from his top step, as we expected, Super Bowl. We kind of knew, it's his track, it's his favourite place. Uh, well, it's his favourite place, but it's his incredibly successful place. Um, and we did all think that no matter what happened, he was going to be the guy that would probably walk away with a treble. And he might do that a few more times this year. Hopefully, for the sake of the championship, that, that things close up a little bit. I don't care who wins. I'm wishing well or or misfortune on no one, ever. It's motorbike racing. It's too much at stake. I'm not wishing anything on anybody when I say anything like that. But it would be great for the championship to have a closer uh, competition for the title all the way to the end. There was a few Grand Prix people there at the weekend, Steve. Journalists, famous riders. You, you know, uh, overall bosses of uh, Honda, etc. Um, and that was good. It was like, you know, the other thing is that Catalonia is a good focus of attention when you get that side of things. And all of them are talking about the domination, you know, that, that, that it's not as good as it was a couple of years ago because of the domination of one rider. And it's exactly the same idea when Jonathan won six in a row. You know, it wasn't as, as interesting as a spectacle for the non-expert fan. And that's where we are now. And that was one of the things, Gordo, I wanted to ask you about because, and anyone can listen back to our podcasts from during the, the Johnny Ray era, but the big talking point back then was the dominance of one rider isn't good for anyone. And what's funny with it now is you've got it where people are basically remaking history to say that everyone thought it was great when Johnny was winning all these races, that everyone was positive. It was, you know, it was a British rider. It was this, it was that. But now that it's Ducati, now that it's a Spaniard, everyone's against it. But nobody liked it when Johnny was going off and there was the the absolute inevitability from the start of the season that he was going to be a world champion. And you have that now again. And 
everyone knows that this isn't a good thing to see for the sport. But you're between a rock and a hard place because you want to balance things out, but you also want to reward the best bike and the best package. And there's no easy way to do that. There's there's no easy answer to a complicated question. And how you can find the solution for this remains to be seen. Yes, and the thing about Johnny's uh, six in a row was that in 19, that wasn't going to be... We'd never got to six in a row because Alvaro was on a Ducati and all of a sudden, boom, he won. I think it was exactly the same. The first 11 out of 12, I can't, I can't remember the figures, but total dominance at the beginning. Um, and everybody was saying, oh, that's the championship over. And we know what happened then. So, you know, at least one of those Ray seasons was not going to be a domination of Ray and Ducati, you know. And, and you know, and he'd a, he'd, he'd a couple of tough seasons... Other times he won out of the park some years and he had to fight really hard to almost the end in other years. So it's not the same thing, you know. One of the big talking points this weekend was the change in the RPM limits. Yes. And this was a change that, and we've talked about it a lot on the podcast in the past, where you can whack extra revs on the Kawasaki, it's not going to make it more competitive. You can take the revs off Ducati, it's not going to blunt it that much because the Ducati has all of its power across a really big rev range so it's not all about that top end power for or top end revs for it it's that torque all the way through for kawasaki they've tuned their bike they've tuned their engine they've tuned their performance around a certain number of revs giving them the extra 250 isn't an an immediate step that they can make that's where the upcoming test this week will be really important for them at mizano they have two days to try and see if they can then utilize those extra revs now they made the request for the revs so they obviously believe that there is an improvement to be made but it is one of those situations where they'll have to wait to get the most from it maybe a track like mizano will help them a lot more than a track like catalonia because there's not too many corners in catalonia i know you talked to alex lowes about it over the weekend where you don't have a big benefit of being able to you know just carry an extra gear instead of having to to shift and make a change from say second to third you can now hold second there's not really that many places in catalonia you get that benefit but at Mizano, there's a lot of places you could potentially get that benefit in very simple terms the ducati can't rev out down the straights but as you say, the, 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 and Alvaro keeps talking about and the fact that people talk about his weight and everything else, he gets out the corners better than anybody else. The bike's got more mechanical grip than anybody else. The bike's got a better torque to put that down without spinning the tyre. He's a lighter package, so he can accelerate well. He's an incredibly experienced rider. And despite all the electronics now, you have to be the rider choosing the trajectory, choosing how fast you open the throttle. All these things matter for the electronics. If you whack it open, the electronics will do something. If you open it just right, the electronics will help you to get out of the corner faster. A lot of those things to do, as you say, are getting out of corners and going through the gears. At the very top, they have taken, there's a little bit that's come off the top of their performance, but you don't notice it at the minute. If there were a 500 more for Kawasaki and two and 500 less in one round, then you might see a difference. But remember, we only found out the actual official figures, we knew something was going to happen because when we looked at the official uh, points for the algorithm that they showed us after, I think that was right after Asin, obviously something was going to happen, but we didn't get the official Ducati's getting 250 less and Kawasaki's getting 250 more until Thursday, one day before they go out on track. So basically they could lift the rev limit up and they had to put the rev limit down. They haven't had the chance to do it in the yet. As you say, testing, sure. Mizano's going to be wet. 
Um, it seems like that test is going to be a washout. Uh, so there's very little probably going to be learned by anybody there, unless they're desperate to get a wet strategy going or just need to put more miles on a electronics ID or something. So, yeah, right now, not change. But if, if there's another one, six races, then we could... That might start seeing a, a, a fairly decent difference. But again, it only depends on the type of track you're going to, where it top end really matters, where acceleration through all those gears really matters. I actually didn't realise it was going to be a wet test court. I've been obviously in Northwest 200 mode now. We're recording this just as practice has started for the Northwest. So I've firmly put myself back into a road racing mentality. And it would be pretty ironic if the Northwest gets really good weather this weekend. And then down in Rimini, it's a little bit different. Everybody tells me it's going to be rotten weather. All the Italians I spoke to, everybody's been, I haven't looked yet. I mean, it's, you know, I haven't looked. I'm not going. I was going to go, but I'm not going. Um, I think it's everybody's, th- in my, from what, every weather forecast, it's not going to be great weather. Um, so maybe if it turns out to be great weather, it'll be, then it's going to be a useful test for people. Um, so we'll see, we'll see how that goes. But I think the confidence of people to have a nice dry test was, on Sunday night, they weren't talking about it. They were talking about oh, bad weather. Obviously, Gordo, we don't really have much to talk about for Alvaro Bautista. We saw what his performance was on track. But one of the one of the things from his press conference as well that was quite interesting was he's going to get a Ducati MotoGP test as a reward for winning the championship. One of the big things that he was asked was, well, why aren't you jumping onto the seat for Le Mans this weekend? Petrucci's coming in. And uh, Alvaro was very clear you don't want to jump into the deep end. You're better off having the test. It could be cold, wet, windy, all the things that aren't good at Le Mans. So he said he wants to do the test. One of the big things that I heard behind the scenes was that he's probably going to get a wild card at the end of the season, whether that's in Valencia for the final round of the MotoGP season or what I had heard was he was pushing to get a Phillip Island wild card. But obviously a flyaway race, it's a big expense to have another rider there. So it could well be Valencia. It also times up nicely, Gordo, with another time that uh, a multiple world superbike champion as Alvaro is more than likely going to be by the time the Valencia Grand Prix rolls around, had a chance to have a one-off wild card on a Ducati and uh, it didn't end too badly for Troy Bayless that time. No, it was it was funny. I was there that year. It was really, really strange because uh, it, Bayless had obviously had a Grand Prix career, had and hadn't worked out. He was sent back to Superbike. Um, and when he got the chance to go and race the way he wanted with his own crew and his own expert people and the people that made him a champion in Superbike around him, he went and spanked everybody in the final race. The the really funny thing about that weekend is, of course, that's the third most significant thing as far as the Grand Prix masses are concerned. <laughs> it actually happened that weekend on exactly the same day. To them, it was most significant. And I'm giving you this in order. Rossi doesn't win the World Championship when he was expected to because he fell off. Nicky Hayden became world champion on the same day, uh, but Troy Bellis is the guy that won the race. I was there, and it was one of those where you just didn't know where to look. What was the biggest story? I mean, obviously, Nicky Hayden being world champion, he was in tears the whole way through the press conference. It was an amazing day um, to watch him doing that. Rossi's guys just wandering about thinking what happened, and then a small knot of people in Ducati just going mad because... They finally proved what everybody knew is that Bayless could could win in that at that level, but he had to win on his own terms, and he and it just shows you if, if you don't give a rider what he needs, you won't get the best out of him. It's the first chance he gave him what he needed, what he wanted. He won the race in a tricky place like Valencia. It's a difficult track and a big, powerful four stroke. 
And that's obviously another chance as well, Gordo, to say that he needed the people around him, Ernesto Marinelli. And, uh, you know, it's amazing that, you know, Ernie's just after turning 50. So you can imagine what it was like for a young crew chief back then having that responsibility. He wasn't trusted with it previous to that. And uh, then suddenly they were able to come in and show what all of them can do because it's not just the rider. Crew chiefs are just as competitive as anyone else. Mechanics, everyone wants to be able to win and to be able to achieve that was something special. But this year in World SBK, everyone wants to win, but we still have it where through 12 races, one guy's won 11 races and he crashed out of the other one. So for Alvaro Bautista, we know he's going to win more races. And it kind of does come down to then what Ducati are going to do next year as well. And that brings us nicely to the other uh, major talking point from Catalonia, the Bassani versus Rinaldi clash. Because we know that both of these guys are fighting for their futures. But I thought that the race one crash between them was a very clear example of the red mist coming down for both riders. They didn't care that there was another 20-odd bikes on the field. They were only interested in each other. And I thought that... I thought I thought the Rinaldi move into turn three was very hard. I thought it was very unnecessary as well, because at the end of the day, yeah. as he said afterwards, I know I've got more pace than Bassani. His pace hasn't been anywhere all weekend. So in that case, why was Rinaldi so keen to come through when he knew that there'd be opportunities to make a move much safer than turn three? And then because he made that move, we saw Bassani throw his hands up in the air. His frustration's clear for everyone to see. Half a lap later, they clashed together. And even though I don't, I 100% don't think that Axel went in to cause an incident with Michael, I think he went in to force Michael to have to stand the bike up a little bit when the opportunity arose. It was proper just jail yard mentality. Someone's done you, you're going to be hard to them because you can't be seen on a racetrack to be the scaredy cat. You've got to be the one that's just as aggressive. You give an inch, the next time they'll take a mile. And Bassani's a rider that never gives that inch. He always pushes it to the limit. And then in this case, he ended up pushing a factory Ducati off the track. And that's obviously not going to sit down too well with Bologna. No. Um, no, you could see those. They've always had that rivalry. Um, and everybody expected, not everybody, a lot of people expected Bassani to be on a factory bike this year. And that hasn't happened. Um my read of that whole incident was, yes, exactly what you say. The two of them are just thinking differently about each other than they do the other riders on the track. It's like, I have to beat this guy every time. It's the mentality they've got. Um, and they did, you know, I, I do think it was probably started by um, Michael's overly eager passive at contact. But I think in terms of the actual when the incident happened and Michael fell off, I think in the way into that corner, he just got a little bit, he had a little wobble, front end wobble, not quite perfect in the way in, and started to go just a little wide. I think if he'd had the perfect line there and no little issue, and it might just have been catching a bump it didn't before, but you can see on the way in, as he's turning in, there's a little bit, and maybe he's running wide, and from right behind him, Bassani just thought, hey, go, you know, just this is my chance, and then they both cut back and collected each other. That's it. I mean, I don't see it's deliberate. I have to say, Gordo, on the live, because obviously we get to see the, the incident when it happens and then one replay. Um, I didn't really notice the bobble. And then it's obviously very noticeable later on when you look back at it. What I noticed was a door had opened and you knew Bassani was just coming through. And 
That's what Axel has to do as well. At the end yeah. of the day, he's a racer. He's there for the Motocorsa team. He's had Ducati step over him already. He probably isn't that convinced that he's going to get the factory seat anyway. So he's out there racing for himself, for his sponsors, for his team. There's an opportunity there. And you knew he was coming through there. But you also knew that there was two riders that weren't going to cede to each other. I think on Sunday we had it where Toprak was on the inside of Rinaldi. And you could see Toprak kind of sit up a little bit on the bike and yeah. change his change his position on the bike as he came through on Rinaldi as well because he was he was aware of what was happening around him. Whereas in this case, both riders were just going for what they wanted as opposed to remembering that you're you're in a race, you're on a track together and you do have to give enough space. And this was a situation where two lines come together. I thought that it was inevitable that Axel was going to get a penalty because we saw the frustration earlier in the lap. And at the end of the day, the one long lap penalty, that's that's been set as the precedence. We saw it last year with Ray against Bautista and Magni Coors. You know, it's not not the end of the world. I thought that just, just to mention it as well, Gordo, we did see that in, in the long lap loop for Bassani, that he came very close to exceeding the limits of the loop. I talked to the FIM afterwards and they said that they had other angles that basically showed the incident a little bit better than the TV camera. So they investigated it. They didn't see the evidence. So um, Bassani was able to get cleared of that. So no advantage, basically. So I think he did actually exceed track limits, but there was no advantage gained by doing so. Where he did it, to me, he definitely did. If, it, if it's worth talking about the same incident, he definitely went on the green. I, I think I think that one of the things for it is that um, in superbikes, because we have so many less cameras compared to MotoGP, and some are less quality as well compared to MotoGP, it's a lot easier to come to a conclusive decision in MotoGP than it is with some of the angles they have available to us in World Superbikes. And they, they looked at it that the, they couldn't conclusively say that he had exceeded the limits. And then they were able to say, okay, we'll just let that, we'll let that go. In all probability, from the angle we saw, I thought the same and I said it on air, that he had exceeded them, but nobody wants to see a, a Another second one. long lap for, for anything like that. But obviously, if there is indisputable evidence for it, they have to, they have to give that penalty. I think it's one of those things, Gordo, that our FIM stewards do a very good job of letting everyone race. And if you've caused an incident where, like with Rinaldi, someone's someone's crashed out of the race, you'll get that long lap penalty in all likelihood. But if it's just if it's just racing with each other, and at the end of the day, we've seen it with Top Rack and Johnny at the front of the field. If you're bar to bar and incredibly aggressive with each other, they will let you race. So I think our stewards do a pretty good job, and uh, I, I certainly don't have too many reasons for complaint with them. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I understand what you're saying. Um, nothing's ever perfect, but um, there aren't quite as many like screaming inconsistencies. There's a lot of opinions about that was deliberate, that wasn't. So you, you don't know unless you're the people involved. Um, where I think there does need to be action to slightly change track a wee bit um, is ultimately the punishments that are given out. If you knock somebody off and you get one long lap penalty, well, the other guy's got nothing and you've got maybe drop one position, maybe nothing. That doesn't seem right to me. When something happens like Petrucci gets pinged for not having his chest protector on and is literally disqualified from a race, I cannot see that riding with a chest without a chest protector gets you disqualified 
right? I mean, you're supposed to wear it and they're very keen on it and you've got to do the safety thing. And I know there's probably precedence and that's what it says in the rule book. But somebody somewhere has to sort out the, 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 the consequence of these things because that is something that's only going to affect you. You're, go- you're the one that's going to get more injured because you get a chest pro- don't have a chest protector. Knocking someone else in a long lap penalty is you've then got to find a way of justifying that it was accidental, absolutely accidental. Um, in fact, if it's a punishment thing, that's a problem, I think, in all areas of the sport. It's a punishment thing. It's not what they've done wrong. What I would say about that, Gordo, for me, all I want to see is where riders are able to race. And the stewards do have a tough job now because everything that they decide is very heavily scrutinised. For the chest protector, at the end of the day, I think Petrucci deserved it because it's very clear that you have to have these things. It used to be a case of you had to have your chest protector scrutineered. And that meant that on a Thursday when you were giving all your safety equipment in, your helmets, your gloves, leathers, boots, all that, you had to have your chest protector. Now wearing the airbag became mandatory. And then after the Quattararo, the zipper gate issue that he had in MotoGP, it then became where you have to have your chest protector on. And all the riders know this. I thought it was it was one of those situations where at the end of the day, if you've gone to the grid knowing that and you've been caught, then on your own head be it. Be punished, but disqualification? I mean, what have you got to do on track to be disqualified in terms of hitting another rider? I want the riders to race, but I want them to race. I don't want somebody to do an entirely reckless, you know, get I'm getting you back manoeuvre, taking someone out and getting a long lap penalty. That is dangerous. To the other person, that I, I can't see a world in which you're, you're punished more for not having a, a chest protector on than you are for literally taking someone out. I, I don't get that. I, I I'll never get that. I if you're going to do that, if you're going to disqualify people for not doing that, you have to disqualify them for that hard pass. Then just say that you're out, sir. You've taken someone else out of the race. You get the same punishment as you've given to them. That'll get people sorted out. Not a long lap penalty. Long lap penalty for not doing this or doing that or, or a, a slightly odd, you know, bad move that lost somebody positions. Absolutely, but you know, I don't. I just don't see the punishments there being equitable for the crime that was committed. I just don't see it. Sorry. Let's uh, let's cut back to the to the action on track as well, Gordo. Because what do you want to talk about most? The battle for for second with Top Rack coming through late in the race and in in two races this weekend. To snatch second spots or do you want to talk about Rinaldi's performance on Sunday where he dropped back in the in the closing stages of race two Ray had a crash in the Super Bowl race wasn't able to recover that then in the afternoon and uh, walks away without without any podiums for the weekend well let's let's uh let's talk about all of them because they're all related to me um it shows you where Toprak is on his Yamaha relative to where Jonathan Ray is on his Kawasaki Toprak can't beat Bautista has done one race this year. Um, he's the only guy that's had a victory in one of his short races. But ultimately, he's still able to be in that second position, like Jonathan Ray was in the in 2019 when uh, Bautista was beating everybody. Johnny was the guy finishing second almost every single race. So Top Rack's doing all he can do to get there, and his team and him and everyone else. And therefore, he has the tools to do that. We know how good Johnny is. If Johnny had the tools and, the, and most importantly the setup, they made changes to that bike this year, remember, and they still haven't found the exact thing and they still have a problem when the temperature goes up. Um, and Johnny obviously has has now been a little bit rattled because he, when he fell, 
was when Toprak was coming over to join him in the breaking zone and trying to outbreak him. And then a, even a, even how good Jonathan is, in an outbreaking competition, nine times out of ten, I'd put my money on Toprak. So Johnny obviously got. He said he was disturbed by the 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 speed that that uh, Razgat Logu was coming to beside him and towards him when they were going in, but. There was a good metre and a half between the two riders when Johnny went over, kissed the white line with the front tyre and down. That's very untypical of Jonathan Ray, and he's had a few of those untypical Jonathan Ray things happening. To me, it shows you how much he's riding at the limit, um, on the less confident than he was before. Um, he's still there. He's an amazing competitor. He never gives up. But Top Rack's putting the whole package of top rack and everything behind him at the moment is definitely working and he's doing as well as he can for compared to Jonathan. So that's that's unfortunate for Jonathan, but it shows what top rack would do. If there was no Batista, top rack would be, to me, he would still be there. Just uh, when you mentioned that about the Super Bowl crash where Johnny touched the white line and the, the spitting rain conditions, this was a situation for me that whenever you're confident, whenever things are going well you're not as aware of top rack as top rack top rack's coming back across the line but there's enough space between them but whenever you're right on that limit you're using all of your mental capacity just to be competitive you don't have that margin like johnny would have had a few years ago where you can almost look around see everything that's happening and then make your decision on what to do instead everything just comes at you that little bit faster and this was one of those moments where, you know, we saw Johnny throw his hands up in the air in Top Rack's direction, but it was unwarranted. It was a mistake from Johnny, and these things happen whenever you're right on the limit. It was an overreaction, but again, you know, at 300Ks, that's fine. And you see, again, something I only saw in the replay was quite how hard that Razgat Lilglu went from centre track to out on the edge basically to avoid the white line that comes out of pit lane. It's all obvious when you see the replays. Razgat literally did not want to be near that white line. Everybody seems to, in, in Catalonia, come out on the left, drift away over to the right on the main straight. Everybody was doing it all the time. And then pulling over to the left to do the braking, rather than staying left and going up there. There's obviously a reason, I don't know why. But Top Rack was over on the right, Johnny on the left already, and Top Rack came shooting over, obviously realised there was a white line there, didn't want to go near the white line with the weather conditions. And that's how he dived over as quickly as he did towards Jonathan. But he was a long way away from Jonathan. And Jonathan, he, he must know he's there. He just passed his, his signal. He must know he's there. He's, he would be expecting something. So yes, I think it was a overreaction to an action of another rider coming in because it was a good distance between them. Just to... Talk a little bit more about Kawasaki as well, Gorda, because we mentioned about them getting the extra 250 revs. It didn't make a difference for them. But when you look at how the performance of the weekend went, I thought it was really interesting on Sunday that Johnny obviously haven't come through the pack after the Super Bowl crash. You look at where where Lowe's was during the course of race two. He had started closer to the front. He's in that battle for second, third, fourth position. He wasn't having to overstress the bike and the tyre. And he was able to hold on to that lead over Ray when Ray came through. It was a little bit the opposite of what we've seen through the course of some races this season where it's been lows coming through and overusing the tyre and then struggling a little bit for that pace at the end of the races compared to Johnny. And I think it gave a good illustration that the Kawasaki is, it's all right if you're at the front and you're able to manage a race. But the second where there's 
a couple of cards have been dealt against you, you're really under pressure. The single biggest problem that Kawasaki's got this year is making the tyres last through the, gen- the, the, the the whole race duration. In Ray and Lowe's, they've got two riders that are good enough to get you the best possible result they can get. Ray is obviously, as a six-time champion, and with all the record he's got, a better rider than Alex. But Alex is a very good rider. And if the bike was more consistent, if he had tyre to the end of the race, he would have had more podiums than he's had already. That's a, to me, that's just a guarantee. That's a Locatelli. Locatelli's a lot of podiums this year. I always under the radar. But Lowe's would have had them if the Kawasaki had get its tyres to last the whole race. That's the only problem they've got. And the hotter it is, the worse it gets. So that's their problem. They can manage it a bit better, go a bit, you know, but bit, qualifying is very important for them now as well. They can stay at the front, they'll hang on to more positions towards the end. Look at Jonathan in, in race two, because he started from 10th, he didn't actually get past Lowe's this time around. Normally in a situation like that, he would be able to find a way past Alex and have a better result. It was Alex in the second, in the last big race. So yeah, they've got troubles, both of them. Similar, but different. The, the net result is, they don't like hot weather. The bike and the tyres don't like hot weather. Even in the cooler weather, getting the tyres to last the way they should do isn't what it was before. And now it's fronts as well. It's not just rears. The front tyres becoming more of a problem. So they've got a lot of work to do. They have a lot of things they need to find in time. Well, that's going to be one of the big question marks. And uh, just looking at it, one of the big talking points that we've had over the course of the last, say, two rounds when we've come back to Europe is what happens next year. A lot of rumours around the paddock. Top Rack has had his head turned by big money offers. We heard from Paul Denning on the world feed on friday that yama has made an eye-watering offer to top rack we're hearing bmw is offering big money it's it's one of those situations where top rack now holds the key for the rider market if he were to leave and go somewhere else it's then a massive talking point about who yamaha would bring on to that second seat in the factory team and then obviously after the bassani rinaldi clash that second seed at Ducati is one of the big talking points. The second seed at Kawasaki as well. The next few rounds are going to be really critical for all this because we know that at Mizano at the start of June, it should be very hot conditions. That should mean that the Ducati works well, the Yamaha works a little bit better than the Kawasaki. So some riders are going to be able to have strong performances in those conditions. The likes of Domi Agador, who we saw have a good weekend in Catalonia. This is the, the period of the season where momentum becomes really important for a lot of riders trying to find a seat for next season. I think it's actually, we need to look at this issue from the management side because what we're looking at here is if Toprak goes to GP, very unlikely now I think, but if he does, Johnny will retire. He's 37, 36, 37. Um, Bautista's one year more, but maybe not more than that. Who's your next world champions in, in World Superbike? Because Behind all those riders, whether it's the manufacturer knowing that I have a competitive bike or I don't, and there's three that have got truly competitive bikes and two that kind of don't at the minute, although the stuff seems to be there, it's just not been brought out yet. In theory, they should be competitive. The rules ensure that they should be competitive. Who are you looking at as the next world champion if you're not counting the ageing Jonathan Ray, the ageing Avaro Batista, and uh, maybe not there this year, next year, top rack? I don't see anybody that's standing out in that midfield, however talented they are. And there's lots and lots of very similar, very fast, 0.2 of a second slower than the very, very best three riders in that paddock. 
we are at the moment now of if people want to look at it in the big class of having three aliens and everybody else. Who's the next? Who who are you? But who are you taking next beyond those three guys that are already in the paddock? And I, you could to me, you could pick any one of six, but none of them are a shoe in to be the next. You know, foggy Ray Batista. Do you think Gordo was, and you obviously know this from whenever you were in the paddock previously, but do you think is this a bit like the 2003-2004 era where you had Haji, Ruben Jaus, Toslin, Laconi, Lavia? I think the difference then is you had Hodgson winning races on a, a, a not the best tyres that they were making at that time and a privateer bike and still winning races. Maybe not many, but he was the guy. Um, and you knew as soon as they got on a factory bike with the, the, the Michelins that were they were just pouring resources into, and it was a Michelin fight between Honda and Ducati, you, and Michelin was still there. This is just before Pirelli changeover, remember. To me, it was Hodgson and Azouz, because those two guys were outstanding as the second-layer level riders, whether they were factory riders or, or privateers. You knew those were there. You knew Toslin was going to come on because he, his projection, his, his, his uh, what's it, trajectory was still upwards, upwards, upwards. There's, you know, we're looking at an awful lot of incredibly talented riders, but none of them are standing out. There were standout candidates in all those years you're talking about. There was obviously one or two or three other people who'd pinged a load of races in. Ronaldi's the closest we've got to that because he's won races and he won races as a privateer, but he's not made that step up since he became a factory rider. He's, he's you know, he's not won a race this year. He's on the same bike as a guy who's running away and won 11 out of 12. He's not that different in build. Um, you would expect him to be close to... If he was going to be the next great guy, he'd be winning... He would be three seconds behind Bautista every race and everybody else is seven or eight seconds behind. If he was a guaranteed next great... You know, next world champion level one. You know, his trajectory seems to have flattened out. So, to me, that's the issue. And then, what do you do? You go fishing in MotoGP. Well, we've been fishing the MotoGP, we brought a few riders over, Agatha had to go through Supersport first. It's not the same as it was in those eras, but, and I was there and saw it all, and I think that's the difference. There was quite an obvious flow, usually from riders inside the paddock. We weren't going quite as often to, to get MotoGP people, and most of them didn't make it. The ones that did, usually took two or three years to make it, even people like Biagi and all that. So, you know what I mean? Kaczynski had to wait a year on a diff- and change bikes to become Superbike World Champion. So, it's a different time now. It's a different it's a different scenario, Steve. Um, even though there is a whole phalanx of 15 people behind the top three that are good enough, or, or potentially good enough, to be podium riders. You know, and they're all on good bikes. Let's look at some of those ones doing the chasing right now as well, Gordo, because this was a weekend where Lekawona up inside the top six for most of the weekend. Javi Vierge on Sunday was able to get into the top six. This is about as good as it's gotten for Honda over the course of the last year. Uh, I think Honda are slightly going backwards. They got all the they, they literally changed the thirty odd years of rules inside Superbike to change their bike last year and and softening the chassis and making much bigger geometry changes to where you start with your adjustable head angle and your adjustable rear swinging arm pivot. We've had quite strict limits on them over the years, reasonable limits over the years, and they got giant ability to change that last year and soften off the chassis. 
which has not been allowed, even though people have done it and been caught or not caught over the years. You are not allowed to do that. They got a mega... It wasn't super concessions last year. It was mega concessions. And so far, it's just not made any difference. And I've just finished transcribing something from the weekend from Lacona who says he was even slower in Aston than he was last year. It's like the changes have made a difference and they can feel more this. But it seems to be they've found something and lost something else. Um... Yeah, I'm 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 surprised the Honda hasn't gone better. I don't know if there's any obvious solution left now. Um but I don't think they've moved on anything like is what they should they should have done, especially when you had that impetus of Catalonia. We had the uh you know, it's literally a home round for Javi and nearly a home round for Lecona who comes from Valencia. But he had uh, a Super Bowl win there last year. You know, I mean you would expect him to at least be able to repeat that this year. You know, to get in that, and his engine is fast. They've got a big, fast straight in Catalonia. That bike is fast, and they're not translating that into getting the power onto the ground. I, I have to disagree that I think this was a there's, there's improvement for Honda. I think, and remember, that's also because everybody else is stepping up. It's not that they are not succeeding in some areas. It's just that everybody else is getting better every year. Yeah, no, I don't mean in terms of like Honda making a big step forward, Gordo. I just mean in terms of this is the best we've seen from him this season. Yeah. And that means top sixes. And it's it's not anything like what we were expecting. I think everyone expected Honda to kick on quite a bit more during this season. And that's where there's been some circumstances against that, whether you look at like Indonesia and things like that, where Lekona had his crashes and absolutely zero confidence. But, you know, top sixes at least showed something from them. Sure. I, I think the pro- the overall problem, and we'll only find out at the end of the year, is did Honda know what they really needed when they asked for all those super concessions last year? Do they know their bike well enough? Do they understand the limitations of their bike well enough and the advantages of their bike well enough to have chosen the super concessions to allow them to maximise that potential for performance, which the Honda clearly has, over a full race, over a full season. So maybe they asked for the wrong thing. Maybe they were looking in the wrong place. That would worry me if if I was the, the person inside. Yeah, one of the things I've heard is that there's going to be an, another homologation of the Fireblade for next year. And then we'll wait and see what changes they make for that. I still think that the Honda's got a lot of potential. Raw potential for sure. But I think there's a lot going for that bike. And we still don't really know. A year and a half in how good Lacona and Vierge are because if you look at Moto 2 as a little bit of a as a guideline Locatelli didn't do much in Moto 2 Xavi Vierge did, did more than Locatelli in that class but they were both inconsistent riders Xavi Vierge has always been pushed up through the ranks a little bit too quick he jumped onto a Moto 2 bike straight after being a super moto rider and then he went straight onto a Moto GP bike he's got a lot of talent and you know Honda were pretty pleased with how he did in the MotoGP at Jerez but is he that rider that they can really pin their hopes on to lead the team I'm really curious to see what happens with that team going forward in terms of their rider choices for next year yeah absolutely I think it's the if you were an experienced rider who's not getting what he thinks he he deserves now you'd be looking at Honda thinking well I'd love to get on that because I can make a difference and they haven't had they have not had we always said it was curious that they would they had two rookie riders and I understand what the the, the the thinking behind it but I think we can say now 
probably they would have been better off with one experienced person, even if they didn't get race results. Maybe that experienced superbike rider who knew what, who'd ridden four different superbikes in the past, a V4, a straight four, whatever, and understood, but yeah, but on, in superbike, you need that part of the bike to work better, this part of the bike to work better, that part. Those guys didn't know that a year and a half ago, and they're, they're learning everything the hard way, and they're not making a, a jump, they're not making a big step. I think that was one of the interesting things, Gordo, where when they, we had that last rider cycle, Honda made it perfectly clear that there was a few riders that they were targeting. It was Lowe's and Bassani to have two riders from inside the Superbike paddock. And then they wanted to bring in another rider to have as that young rider coming through, the Lekwona rider, effectively. And I do wonder whether or not they would have been served a little bit better going down that route of a mix and match rather than the two rookies. But as it is, that's where now they can't afford to make the same mistake again. Well, let's put it this way, Steve. If they've got, if they had started with one experienced rider and one rookie rider, and they're both giving the same feedback, you know the area they're looking in is that. That's when you need to improve the area to look in, right? If they were given different feedback and one was having much better results than the other one, then you go, okay, well, this guy's the one to choose going forward. To me, what they need now is somebody who's super experienced to go along with whichever of those two riders they want to keep. And who knows, maybe one of the, maybe those two riders will go, you know what, maybe I'd be better off on whatever bike might come available for next year. Because there's a lot of riders looking to move for next year, if they can, and the year after. Um, that, to me, is the bigger... Uh, you've got to get the package right. And two rookies, I think now, we can say with some degree of safety was maybe too bold a move. I admired them, I respected them, but I think it was just too much change at one time, you know? I have to say, Gordo, one of the riders that's impressed me through the, f- the first third of the season, Domi Agador, and we knew Domi was going to be good because we saw a lot of great race craft in Supersport, but I think his adaptation to a Superbike has been very impressive. We saw that again at the weekend. Front row start, you know, top six finishes through the last couple of rounds, He's he's one of those riders that kind of got overlooked a little bit whenever he went to the Supersport class. We kind of looked at it and said, well, that's a rider at the at the tail end of his career now, regardless of his age. He had dropped off the GP scene and he's done a great job to rebuild himself and, and give himself a chance like this. No, absolutely. He's a lot better rider than I think a lot of people give him credit for. He's all smiley, happy, jokey, thousands of pictures on Instagram. You know, that kind of guy. But he's fierce racer. Very few people do what he was able to do in Supersport twice. Um, he's, a, he's he's obviously got experience because he was a test rider and ra- rode Suzuka and things like that of a Superbike as well. Um, the, the thing about Superbike is you don't have to be a young rider. There's plenty of examples of older riders coming to Superbike, whether they come from MotoGP or it just took years for them to get a chance, who came to Superbike and really performed. The age thing just doesn't matter as much. And it's also... We there is a kind of fashionable thing in MotoGP where a younger rider is a better, and they produce so many good young riders. It's easy to take them, and Superbike. The the lesson we have all learned over the years is that you need one good old and then one good young, and that that would be the best way to do it. You know, especially looking at the future, because then the young one becomes the old one, and then you bring in another young one, so you can breed and keep your own riders. Yamaha rewarded him with that ride in Superbike this year, and I think that was a very smart move. He's doing better than Remy Gardner. Yeah, I, I think that's fair to say. And uh, let's look at, at an old one. Can he still be a good one? Tom Sykes, he's going to be 
testing for BMW this week in Misano. He's left Pichetti after an absolutely miserable first four rounds of the season. I was surprised it lasted this long, to be honest. But Tom's out at Pichetti. He's going to be back on the BMW for the test. We'll wait and see what happens going going forward. He's in there to replace Michael Vandermark. Vandermark obviously with the leg fracture and out for another while. But uh, for Tom, at least this is an opportunity to, to get himself onto a situation that hopefully lets him show a bit of something. Yeah, I mean, Sykes is is one of the cookiest riders out there. You know, he's either brilliant or the opposite. Um, look at how miserable a year he had when he went back to BSB last year, but then he won two races at Donington. You know, you'd never quite know what you're going to get with Tom Sykes. Um, but we all know how fast he is. He, You know, he's been on pole in the BMWs. He's had some great results as a factory rider there, and then some really not good results. I think we can expect more of the same now. I don't think at the age he is, at 37, I think he is, is going to change a lot. But if they hit the right seam of gold and the setup and everything else, I don't, you know, Tom could be on pole. You know what I mean? If, if he gets a chance to ride a few races, there's no reason why not. You know, it, it, but he also might be a disaster again. I think, to, just to finish off, the Kawasaki thing was a bit of a gamble from everybody's point of view. They needed a big rider and the, the, the you know, that's a big independent team. They're, they've had success and wins in the past. They want to do that again. Kind of equivalent of Barney and, and Superbike uh, and Ducati, sorry. That was a bit of a gamble and it absolutely didn't pay off for anybody. And I think everybody's just realised we're all being damaged by this. It's time to go. So, yeah, I agree with you. It, it might have even finished sooner. I think Tom expected some progress with the Kawasaki in the years he'd been away and there wasn't any and it wasn't a factory bike. You had those two things together plus all the other things. Yeah, it what to me it wasn't good. As soon as you saw them on the bike, you thought, hmm, this isn't going to work. So they've done the sensible same thing and everybody's decided to part ways. And BMW, they need, unfortunately, they need a, an experienced rider on it. And maybe that's as much to do with the feedback because Tom is one of those riders that wants everything just so. Now, he might have his own style compared to most riders, but if they're capable of giving him what he wants then it does again prove to the engineering group that actually maybe the BMW just needs everything to be lined up, which is still my opinion. There's a potential that would be a very good bike. But again, it's not quite shown it. Yeah, and I think that's something that a lot of people have said as well that have ridden the bike. Vandermark's actually very pleased with the progress they've made. It just needs that extra little step. Just to move on as well, Gordo, very quickly before we finish up, Super Sport, um, Taz McKenzie's going to be on the MIE Honda Superbike at this week's test. So that's a good opportunity for Taz. But in the Super Sport class, the big story, Bahatin Zafoglu being able to get his first podium on Saturday and then his first win on Sunday. And i tell you what, I thought he just rode really well. The MV did have an advantage in Catalonia. You could see that at the end of the pit straight. It had a big top speed, but you still got to make it work whenever you're a 19-year-old kid in your first full season in World Super Sport. I thought Zafogli rode really well. Well, I've written a few stories over the years about rider training. And in terms of going into a fight on the track, there is no better rider training than having Kenan Zafoglu on one side, top rack, Razgat Leoglu on the other side, and two other younger guys banging into the, the, the side of your tail unit when you're getting into practice at uh, Keenan's slightly sketchy home track, you know, and that's all they do. They do other things and they train, they do gym training and everything else. But ultimately, his preparation for going into the wild west of a super sport race 
the last few laps when everybody's still stuck together, um, his preparation for that is to have been beaten up by some of the best riders that have ever been in Supersport and now Superbike. Um, yeah, I'm not surprised. I am surprised that he's made such progress in a relatively short time. The MVs obviously have got very, very high capabilities now. It's an 800. I think that you, we can see as soon as they make a change in any of the balancing rules in that super sport class, it has an absolute instant effect on results. Well, with a year and a bit of that now, and as soon as somebody gets a bit more or take, a bit taken off, you can see that there's a, a result of that. But the human being is the driving force, pardon the pun, behind it all in the end. And that human being happened to be Batting at the weekend, and it was great to see. And the other, and Schrotter as well. There's another one we found from from Moto Two, and he's right up there. He's right up there from day one. So that's still a kind of look at the Kawasaki's. As soon as you took Onshu away, the Kawasaki results were not there. When on Onshu is the one that can make the Kawasaki run because he's got experience on it, and it's a little bit better bike. The Kawasaki is allowed to have all, more electronics and a few other things this year compared to previous years. So what's now back in the mix? Maybe only with one rider. But that whole next generation super sport thing has been a great success, even with all the controversies, even with all the mess up at the beginning of this season with revs and everything else and throttle openings that were... There was a lot of mess after Scott Smart had was forced out of, the, of his job in FIM. There was a big transition in that, uh, made a few changes to the, the entire landscape of the championship. But look at what we've got so far and look at all the riders that have won since the, the next generation came in. It's great. It's great class. I have to say, Gordo, just about Marcel, you mentioned Schroeder. I bumped into Jack Miller on the way out of the track on Saturday and Miller said to me, just keep an eye on Marcel. He's a very talented rider that gets better and better as he gets more experience. So he's certainly expecting, Like obviously it's worth using the, the proviso that uh, they are best mates, but he's very much expecting that Marcel's going to be winning races and able to keep himself in that title contention all the way through the season. Just to quickly move on to 300s as well, Gordo. Obviously, the 300s is always a lottery, but um, there is a few riders that uh, made a little bit of an impression at the weekend. Jeffrey Bowes was able to get back to winning races in the 300 class. Humberto Meyer had a pole position and came through the pack for a top five on Saturday. I thought he was impressive. Um, Marco Janai was able to come away with two podiums the 300 class for the first time really looks like there's actually a little bit of almost riders just having a little bit of um, little bit of balance through the course of the season you've got the same riders at the front of the field on a regular basis through the first two rounds and that's a good thing this is now starting to be that little bit of a little bit of a proving ground and then with Safoglu coming in and winning a race he's done something that Manuel Gonzalez was able to do and we know how good Gonzo is but now to have it where riders can come from 300s into the super sport class and do a good job, a lot of that comes down to the fact that 300s are just performing a little bit better now. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the overriding issue for the 300s is still that there's you know, too many, if you want to use that expression, riders can ride them at full performance. What happens is that they, through recklessness, can mess with the seasons and the races of the better riders. But when the riders are good enough, they tend to find themselves in that top five. Even when there's three seconds covering the top 20, they're the ones that get inside that top five most often. Uh, we saw DeSora. You know, he's another one you've got to keep an eye on. But he had, uh, you know, got pinged twice in the second race and then it all went wrong. So, you know, there's a lot of luck involved in that category. Literally, a lot of luck. And being in the wrong place, 
you might have done everything right and somebody else skittles you or tries an ambitious pass and you, you drop five places over the line. There's still a lot of un- variables that riders can't control, but the best riders, the ones that are the best racecraft and the coolest heads, very important in that class. Cool head, hot throttle hand. That's what the, the, the dictum of that class. Um, are the ones who are going to come through. And we've seen that already. The trouble is that we're not producing enough per season. Definite move on, people. But it has improved. What you're talking about is starting to show a sign of people coming through 300. So, yes, it is now starting to work. Um, and let's remember, there's half as many of them on the grid trying to qualify. It's It's still completely mad, but it's half as mad as it was before. They still need a talking to every now and again and they need to improve their behaviour on track. They need to learn. But the ones that do learn are showing themselves now. They got a very public dressing down during the yes. course of the Super Bowl session, Gordo. Yes. I thought that this was something that's been coming for a long time. They had this a few years ago in, in Portimao as well. I thought it was very positive to see that. The, you mentioned Tesoro. It looked like Samuel just got a big punishment for uh, for basically just to give someone the punishments over the course of the weekend. Because I thought especially his his one for the long lap penalty just seemed a little bit harsh to me. There's a yeah. rider that's made a mistake. He's run off the track and DeSaro hasn't left the track limits of the long lap penalty and gets pinged again for it. So this yeah. is one of those weekends where I think the stewards were, were really keen to come down hard on riders in the 300 class. And the problem is that the riders are the ones that the only ones that can affect it. The stewards can be as hard on them as they like. And they will start having to disqualify and banning people for two races. That's the next stage, is if you're that silly, you will get taken out. But how many times did we see riders off the whole racing surface down the main straight? You know, doing that once is not worth in a weekend. It happened more than once at Assel, you know. And and that's just, no. It, it, it doesn't matter how keen you are to overtake and everything else. No, you know, you can't do that stuff. It's basic. You can't do that in club racing. You'll get disqualified. you get pinged for it. So it has to be done. You know, they have to find a way of stopping people doing it. And they just need to do it by the worst offenders. Do a, However they total things up, they need to sort it out. Well, Gordo, that brings us to the end of our pod, looking back at the Catalan round. We've got three weeks off now between now and when we fly out to Italy for Mizano. What's your plan for these three weeks? Uh, I've still got quite a lot of stuff to do, working-wise, which is great. Um, I'm going to... I'm taking my boy out Friday for a couple of beers. I'm seeing my mates on Saturday for maybe more beers. Um, for the first time, we haven't seen each other in ages. Um, so yeah, there's going to be, I'm going to have some leisure time as, and amongst all the work, but I've got a lot of work to do, uh, which is great. You know, I've, I've been too quiet in some recent years. So I'll take all the work that comes my way, mate. I'm quite happy doing it. You'll have beers on Saturday night as well to watch the Eurovision, no doubt, Gordon. <clears throat> the what? Scotland, <laughs> look, Scotland doesn't have an entry in Eurovision. I don't care. I don't care. I watched you. The last time I watched Eurovision was at a Le Mans Grand Prix donkey's years ago, when basically I went to bed early, couldn't sleep, and the telly was on, and I'm sitting watching. And I go, what is what is going on here? You know, that's the last must, time I watched. It Eurovision. must be a while ago, Gordo. If it was when you were in the GP paddock, obviously you're a superbike through and through now. But uh, on the Paddock Pass podcast, we obviously cater to everyone, Gordo. We've got uh, lots Correct. of GP coverage from Correct. Le Mans this weekend as well. David, Adam and Neil are all on site for that. So keep an eye on patreon.com forward slash Paddock Pass podcast for the Paddock Note Show through the course of the weekend. 
And then uh, myself and Gordo will be back after Mizano with our next Superbike show. Uh, I just have to say before we leave, it was an immense pleasure to see Neil at the weekend with his mommy there as well. It was great. Um, you know, I, I bumped into him at a, a celebration thing in the winter and I haven't seen him for years before that and it was great to see him and have the get the chat and all that stuff, you know? Um, the human face of MotoGP racing, people like Neil. Yeah, I have to say, I was glad to see him at the Superbike class and uh, I thought the most fun thing was he was able to just be a fan for the weekend. He came yeah. in, he was able to get himself onto the grid, get onto the service road, able to as you said, take Susan around and show her the sights as well without the pressures of a normal race weekend. And I think that's always the fun thing whenever you get to go to a race like that. And uh, Gordo, you'll obviously have that whenever you get to the TT in a few weeks as well. You'll yeah. be a little bit of, of a holiday man. Yeah, I'll, I'm on. No, I'll be working. I'm going to write a feature about it. But I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm going to have, I'm not going to have the same pressure of reporting on things. And I'm just doing a straight feature story about it all. And I'm looking forward to it. I'm already phoning up people I know are going to be there and checking things out and someone else is taking care of all the travel and all that. So, no, I'm I'm peaking and I haven't been, I'm, I must have been to the TT since, but I don't think I've been to the TT since 1998, 97. A long time. And I used to go every year as a fan, you know, as a, as a journalist working at magazines. But, I, yeah, I, I must have been since then, but I can't think I have. I mean, really, that's how long, I mean, that's a long time ago, eh? So I'm 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 really looking forward to it because you guarantee a lot of things that TT won't have changed a bit, and then there'll be loads of other things that have changed in the TT and Isle of Man in general, you know. So I'm really looking forward to it. It's it's still unbelievable. I can't wait to get back to the TT. I hadn't gone until 2015, so it was the first year working for MCN in MotoGP. I went to the TT that year. And I couldn't imagine missing it now. And it really is something special. Northwest 200's on this weekend. So I've firmly got my road racing hat on now for the rest of the week. But Gordo will be back in action in a few weeks at Mizano. And then no doubt whenever we're there, we'll just be counting down to your return to the island. And uh, it's going to be special. 25 years since the last time you were there, Gordo. Nothing's changed and everything's changed. And as usual on the Paddock Pass podcast, nothing's going to change going forward for us. We're going to be plenty busy. As I said, keep your keep your eyes out on Patreon for the Paddock Notes show with the boys from the Grand Prix Paddock. We've had a lot of good additional content on that over the course of the season so far. On this week's Paddock Pass podcast MotoGP show, we looked ahead to the Moto E season. We had a good interview with Nicola Goubert. We also had Neil who... Did a little bit of work at the Catalan World Superbike Ground. He caught up with Chaz Davis to get his thoughts on the Ducati Moto e-bike. And uh, we've got, as I said, lots of other content coming up for everyone as well. No doubt we'll have a fair bit from the TT as well. But Gordo, great to have you as usual on the World Superbike Pod. And uh, I'm looking forward to catching up with you again in Mizano. Cheers, mate. Lovely to talk to you. And a big thanks to Renthal Street for sponsoring the pod, as well as everyone that supports us on Patreon as well. Patreon.com forward slash Paddock Pass Podcast.
This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast was produced by Jensen Beeler, David Emmett, Steve English, Neil Morrison, and Adam Wheeler. It was edited by Brian Burnett. Music is provided by the Libertines. All inquiries can be sent via email to team at paddockpasspodcast.com.